Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, again for the the diligence and the commitment and the uh, persistence of so many to come and hear your word every week. I thank you, Father, because uh, this event makes possible the opportunity for so many others to hear the word. And so, Father, I thank you that we have people who are uh, attending, but not only for their own purposes, but in a selfless way as well. And uh, I, I praise you, Father, that you've called men and women together for that purpose. And I also praise you, Father, for the giving me an opportunity to teach and for your word to be able to, to be distributed around the world and in the way that you've made available. And I, I pray, Father, the teaching would, uh, would honor that opportunity and would be uh, commensurate with it, would be worthy of it. And let it be the truth, Father. Let the Spirit guide what I say. Let those who hear, hear it with the Spirit so that they know it's from you. And let it all be to your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're back in the middle of the Council of Jerusalem, that moment when the apostles in Jerusalem convened to address a central question. The question was, what is the basis of salvation? That's not exactly how it was framed, perhaps, but that's essentially what it gets down to. The question of what does it mean to be saved? How are men saved? What is required? We've already looked last week in the way the apostles themselves were not confused on that issue. I think that's an important distinction. When we hear about the Council of Jerusalem, we read about it, and we're talking about it, don't let your mind get to thinking that there was some fundamental question among the apostles around how you are saved. That that is clear in their minds. And they met in secret before this larger uh, council convened uh, precisely to ensure they were all on that same line of thought. Then they walked into this public moment and ensured that the decision that the group arrived at was consistent with the gospel. And you know this, by the way, just by reading their own letters, Paul's letters, Peter's letters, James's letter. They are not at all confused on the meaning of the gospel, on the means of salvation. And some of those letters were written prior to this moment, and in particular, James's letter. So uh, we know what they understand. But the council is an important part of the early church establishing the way in which truth will be maintained and taught and arguments and disagreements resolved. So there is still value to the moment, even if the question on the table is not in doubt among the leadership. But there are those in the room for whom the question is not settled, of course. There are men within this group of Pharisees who have become Christian, who are distorting the gospel. They're adding works of the law and of circumcision as a requirement for salvation. And they're levying those requirements on the Gentiles. My view is that they do this in part to protect their culture and their prominence within the culture. For after all, if the church starts to become largely Gentile, then the influence of Jews is diluted very quickly. So as long as they can make everyone Jewish first, then it remains a Jewish thing. And the Pharisees remain an elite group within that organization. I think it's entirely self-serving. The teaching, of course, has stirred up this emerging Gentile church within Antioch and the surrounding regions. They have asked the apostles to come down here because they question whether or not it was necessary for them to become Jewish. And that was the question the apostles left Antioch with and uh, and arrived in Jerusalem with. Is it necessary for a Gentile to become Jewish, meaning obey the law, be circumcised, before they could be considered Christian, before they could be considered saved? Last week we read through verse 11. I'll reread a few of those verses this week just to remember how Peter responded when it was his turn to stand up. But we did look at it in part last week, so we'll move beyond it fairly quickly. But starting in verse 7, let's read into the text again. Acts 15, verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, 
Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So like we saw last week, Peter had listened to all the arguments, sat there quietly, given everyone a chance to have their say, but he already knew how he and the other apostles viewed or decided this issue. They already knew the truth of the gospel. And because they had met privately in advance and concluded that there was going to be grace through faith as the answer to the question, how are you saved, and nothing more, Peter was prepared to bring that answer here in this moment. By the way, if you weren't here last week uh, and you're wondering how do we know some of these things transpired, you you can go read those in chapter 2 of the letter Paul wrote to the Galatians. In summary, Peter highlights the errors in their thinking. We looked at this last week, but just to list them again quickly, uh, he says, God made clear it was his choosing the Gentiles that brought them into the faith. God also made clear that they were receiving the same spirit that he gave Jewish believers, which is the clear sign of salvation. So the conclusion Peter draws is if Gentiles were saved by an act of God and received the spirit in the same way as he gives to the Jew, then we know definitively they have been saved. They are already approved by God. They do not have to become Jewish first because they're already saved. The evidence of salvation is present. So the question of whether you have to be Jewish first has been answered by the fact that they've already been saved before circumcision, before they took on the law. It makes those other things unnecessary by definition. Picking up from that point, we look now at the crowd's response. And we're thinking about now the room, the people that were assembled here listening to Peter's statement. Verse 12, all the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. It's kind of an interesting response for all the debate and controversy. Now, as Peter stands up and makes this statement and and resolves the issue, it's silence. So the first thing we notice here is Peter's words caused the room to fall silent. Both sides, it would seem, have refrained now from further argument and further comment. It It would seem then that Peter's statement has settled the argument. Now, that makes sense for at least two reasons. One is Peter has the credibility as chief apostle and the one who God had entrusted to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Remember, he was the one who opened that door. So if anyone in the room had anything to say about whether Gentiles could be received into the gospel, it would be Peter. So as he stands up, who's going to argue with a man like Peter? It's certainly not in a public setting. And if you feel his word isn't authoritative, if if you were somebody in the room who questioned the authority of Peter then why would you even be a part of this movement? Why would you even be in the room? It wouldn't make sense for you to have subjected yourself to this council if the words and the thoughts of the apostles did not carry weight. So as they rule, you're left with nothing but an an opportunity to accept the ruling. There is a second reason, though, that I think is supernatural. The first reason is really natural, just politics. But the second reason, I think, is supernatural. Going back to what we said, I think, last week, where Peter has been given the power to bind and loose on earth, issues or or concerns related to the doctrine of the church in keeping with what is true in heaven. We saw that. I didn't read these last week, but I thought it would be good to bring them up and read them this week. Matthew 16, 
18 and 19 of the verses. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said to Peter, this is immediately following, by the way, the moment when Peter makes his declaration that you are the Christ, the Lord, and Jesus responds by saying, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Simon Barona, but my Father in heaven revealed this to you. Um, Then he goes on to say, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Notice the verb tenses in that last statement. He says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. The heavenly binding was past tense. It had already occurred. What he's doing is he's giving Peter assurance that as you make these decisions concerning the doctrines of the church or or issues of what is proper and good for the church, have assurance, Peter, that you'll be acting in my spirit and under my authority and you will be acting in accordance with my wishes. You do not have to doubt your own decision making, in other words. You do not have to question whether you have the judgment or the knowledge to carry this job out. You can be assured that what you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Keeping that in mind, because some people turn that around and think of it the opposite way, as if God was obliged to do whatever Peter said. And that's not the sense of it at all. It's the other way around. It was an assurance to Peter he had God's backing to get the job done right. So when Peter spoke in this moment, his authority would be supernaturally evident. God will ensure that his truth will win the day. That he will not have those who would try to undermine his authority, that God by his own power through the Spirit would ensure that when Peter makes this declaration, it would have the force and the effect necessary to ensure it was carried out. What Peter established by his ministry, personal ministry, and through the influence of the other apostles was the record of Scripture. Going back to what the early church had to experience in the first years of the church when the New Testament was not yet written, how do we establish what is right and wrong in the church? God used men in the role of the apostles to become the glue to hold together the truth of the church in the early years. But in the course of their own writings, they transferred that knowledge and authority into a permanent form, which becomes Scripture. We now rest on that. So Scripture now takes the place of of men's personal authority. Men's authority now is totally contingent on their ability to apply Scripture properly. So as Peter spoke here, I believe men fall in line behind him, both because of political purposes, his own power and authority, and also supernaturally because the Spirit brings that alignment. The second thing you notice here about the silence is it gives opportunity for Paul and Barnabas to start speaking. And I find that a little comical. I have to believe maybe Paul and Barnabas just love to talk anyway. So if they're like me, they can't stand too much silence. They feel they have to, they have to fill that moment. And Paul and Barnabas begin to relate some of their experiences in ministering to Gentiles. And I'm left with the sense here that they filled the silence with these stories because it reinforces Peter's decision and Peter's viewpoint. Peter says... The Gentiles are being saved in the spirit just as Jews. And so Peter and Barnabas now have firsthand accounts, firsthand stories from their own ministry to prove that point, to back it up. We saw the spirit do this. We saw him take this job, this role or in this way, move people to believe. And so they share what they've seen in their own ministry, which reinforces the truth of what Peter has said. The lessons from Paul and Barnabas as they speak are that without God's direct approval, without God's direct involvement through the spirit, none of their own personal accomplishments in ministry would have been possible. When they relate their own stories, they're demonstrating God's at work saving Gentiles because it's self-evident men don't save men. 
look how successful we've been going from city to city to city, and now they're all filled with churches. Who could have imagined that happening except that God's at work? Clearly, the Gentiles are being saved without the need to become Jewish. Now, at this point, it gets a little more intriguing. Another apostle is going to stand up and speak, James in this case. Verse 13, after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his own name. With these, or with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may see the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So now we see James speaking. James is the brother of Jesus. This is the author of the letter James, and he is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which would effectively make him the senior leader in this council, the senior elder of the church. Now, I don't mean to imply that his authority extended outside the city in some pope-like fashion, but it is to say that men gave him deference for the sake of who he was in Jerusalem. And And I think that's a respectful and reasonable thing for them to do. I do find it ironic that if there was to be any kind of pope, Peter was not the first one. James is the first one. And it is not Peter, as you know, who makes the final decision here. Peter sets the tone by his statement. Paul and Barnabas reinforce it by their experience. But it's James who actually makes the decree that becomes the rule, showing you that he has the leading role in the church. James calls for the group's attention. Then he says, Peter's words agree with Scripture. He does not say Peter's words are convincing or Peter is convincing or Peter's the authority, so we have to go by him or I happen to like the way Peter put it. What he says is we can know Peter's true or his words are true because what he says agrees with Scripture. That's an important way of contending with doctrinal issues in the church. I find it useful to see that even the apostles were doing this even as they worked out issues in the early church. And, of course, they don't have New Testament Scripture, so they refer to Old Testament Scripture, all the same in that respect. And what James points out is that God has spoken beforehand through prophets, saying that he would select from among the Gentiles a people for himself. This is comparable to the way that God had reserved for himself a people from among the Jews. The Jews collectively are God's chosen people, but God himself makes a distinction between Jewish people and the remnant. Those who are the remnant are those who he is working in to bring saving faith and to hold to himself, to keep to himself from within a larger group of apostate Jews. And in that kind of an analogous way, he is looking at the world of Gentiles. And according to Old Testament scripture here, specifically, we're looking at the book of Amos. He is saying, I'm going to pull from out of the world, out of the kingdoms of the world, Gentiles who are called by my name. That today would be the church, of course, those in this room, of course or uh, any other Gentile who has come to know the Lord during this time. So the Gentile nations will produce a a remnant of sorts. I wouldn't use that word literally. It's not appropriate to call Gentiles a remnant. But in a comparable sense to what he's doing with the nation of Israel, God pulls a group of people out from the larger group and calls them his own. 
James here quotes from Amos 9, 11 through 12. And it's worth a moment to look at, these, at the passage he uses because there is some uh, unfortunate controversy over what James is saying here. Unfortunate because I don't believe it needs to be controversial. I think it's very straightforward. But men have taken these verses and gone off in some different directions trying to understand James's application. How is James trying to apply what Amos said to this moment in the Council of Jerusalem? What Amos actually says in those verses is God will return. You notice in verse 16, it says, after these things, I will return. Well, you'd have to go to the book of Amos to find out what are these things that he says he's coming after. If you go to the book of Amos, what you find him describing is tribulation. So after tribulation, he says, I will return. And of course, that's consistent with what we know Scripture says elsewhere. Jesus returns at the end of the seven-year tribulation. And then going on, Amos says, God will return, Jesus will return after the tribulation, and he will rebuild the temple. This is also consistent with other Old Testament Scripture. There is a new fourth temple rebuilt for the time of the Messianic Kingdom. Jesus rules from the seat of, of David inside the temple, and there is sacrifice taking place. There is um, offerings being given. There is uh, all the, the ritual that takes place in the temple is restarted under Jesus, only, although the rules are different. If you go read them in Ezekiel, it's not an exact duplication of what Moses gave, but it is still an active process in the temple. Amos declares all of this in this, in this chapter, that there is a tabernacle to be rebuilt, that Jesus has returned to rebuild it and restore it. And then look in verse 17 of Acts. The purpose for this rebuilding is in part so that the rest of the world in that day, mankind, will seek the Lord, literally come back to the temple. It acts like a giant lighthouse in this day. And it is a beacon calling all the nations to come and worship the Lord Though now they're worshiping him in his physical presence, where if today we said, come worship the Lord, we do it in spirit only. He's not present except by his spirit in us. So this is the time Amos is writing about. Now, how is James applying this Old Testament prophecy? His application here is simply to prove that the Old Testament scriptures have always anticipated that there would be a day when Gentiles were included in God's plan for salvation. The very fact that there is in this future day an attempt or intent by God to seek people out of the kingdom, uh, I mean out of the world, out of mankind, calling Gentiles by his name to get them to come to him, to worship him, is self-evident proof that the Gentiles are a part of God's plan. James is not saying, obviously, I would think, that this passage speaks of the time of Acts. James is not trying to suggest that the thing Amos wrote about is the thing that's happening in James's day. And we know from looking at the scripture through the, the, the lens of other scripture, we know this isn't talking about the time of Acts. It's talking about a time still future even for us. But its application is one of, therefore, because this is true, therefore we know something else to be true. And that's how James was applying it in this context. He simply says that God's affinity for Gentiles is self-evident in Scripture and has been even from the beginning, thus proving that God does not intend to make everyone Jewish before they can come to know him. That's the fundamental proof of what James brings out in Amos, that it is not an expectation by God that men be Jewish before they can worship him. Look, he said he's going to have Gentiles worship him someday in the future. So we should expect to see it happening now as well. That's the application. Some men have looked at that text and tried to say James is, is implying that Amos was talking about the time of Acts. And of course, if that's what you believe, 
then you would start to believe that the events of tribulation are also contemporaneous with the time of Acts. And that's when you get to an amillennialist view and you believe that there is no millennial kingdom and so on and so forth. So James likewise concludes, as Peter did, and Paul and Barnabas for that matter, that they should not, he says, trouble, do not trouble Gentiles who are coming to the Lord. Don't trouble them. Of course, the reference to troubling here reflects the Pharisees' insistence that the Gentiles be circumcised. You can be sure that was troubling. You can be sure that to an adult Gentile male who had come to faith and viewed themselves saved on that basis, to come later to hear that, now there's something else you've got to do and you're not going to like it, that was troubling. And then as their friends hear that that's a requirement for salvation, consider what that would have done, what kind of dampening effect that would have had on the spread of the gospel. Unnecessarily so, of course, because it had nothing to do with salvation. Not a good church growth strategy. <laughs> but James says it's not helpful and it's not necessary, so don't trouble them with it. Don't place that burden. And he's also, by extension, he's, of course, also referring to the law and the burden that it provided as well. But I have to imagine that first requirement was a doozy uh, all by itself. And then James addresses something interestingly there at the end. He He goes beyond the mere issue of whether or not you have to be Jewish. He now addresses some of what were probably pharisaical demands but probably not limited to the Pharisees, demands that the Gentiles follow the law. You know, the Pharisees have been insisting on this practice. I think part of that desire was to Jewify the Gentiles and keep the culture of the church monolithic as, as much as they might have tried. But there was a secondary concern, which I think James here rightly acknowledges and tries to address in a fair compromise. The second issue that would have been driving the Pharisees' concern or their interests here was on the offensive nature of many common Gentile practices. How these practices, and in particular two areas of life, eating and in sexual matters, there was the potential for tremendous strife and tremendous discord between Jews and Gentiles in the early church if these practices were allowed to continue. And so James offers a compromise that's designed to help the Gentiles integrate successfully into a new church with their Jewish brothers so that there is a harmonious unity in the early church, which is, after all, a good thing for all parties concerned. So, as I said, these items deal with two issues, eating and sexual practice. Three of them deal with eating, so you can see how important that was, and one of them was sexual behavior. These are areas of life that were central to maintaining fellowship with Jews. I mean, think about it already, just in what we've studied in the book of Acts so far. Peter gets roundly criticized from his friends because he ate one night with Gentiles. And, and with no suggestion that they did anything weird, they just sat down in the room with them. Imagine Jews and Gentiles trying to fellowship on an ongoing basis, eating from the Lord's table, and so on. This was a challenging kind of integration. So James recognizes this will be a challenge. And if the Gentiles continued engaging in these practices... Practices that were literally abhorrent to Jews. If you can imagine some eating practice that today would make you ill if it happened at your table, some kind of food that, or some way of eating, just something that if you were having to sit next to it, it would be repulsive to you, put that in the, this context. That's the Jewish mindset. From the time they were this big, they've been taught that certain practices were abhorrent, and culturally that sticks. We all know that feeling when we go to another culture and they eat that. Really? They eat that? Oh, who could eat that? Well, why do they think it's okay and you don't? Cultural differences. Over time, they became accustomed to it, and over time, we become repulsed by it. Well, that's what James is trying to deal with. So what he does to try to successfully integrate Gentiles into the body of Christ, 
is he asks that they not eat meat sacrificed to idols, not eat things that have been strangled, and not eat blood, specifically blood by itself. All of these things were prohibited under Jewish law. So Jews had never been willing to engage in them. They'd always been taught from the very beginning never to do it. But under liberty, under their newfound liberty in grace, there was no legal prohibition, no biblical prohibition for anyone concerning these matters, neither Jew nor Gentile. But nevertheless, they're offensive to Jews. And the fact that liberty has attached to their newfound faith would not immediately reverse these natural innate views of life. And James knows that. So if the Gentiles continue, because, of course, Gentiles are now free to do it. They always were. Fellowship would be impossible. So he says, do not eat these things. And Paul, as you may know, in 1 Corinthians, addresses eating meat sacrificed to idols. And he argues for a view that is consistent with what James is saying here, although he expands on it slightly. To the church in Corinth, which was largely, if not exclusively, Gentile, he argues against eating meat sacrificed to idols when they know that it's been sacrificed to idols because of a witness issue and maybe secondarily because of any Jewish you know, fellowship in that church being, being at risk. But he doesn't prohibit it because it's wrong. He doesn't say it's flat out ungodly to do so. He was looking at it from this point of view of how it influences other people. That's consistent with what James is saying here. It's not a legal issue. It's not a, a sin issue. It's a fellowship issue. For the one who had no compunction over the action itself, Paul appeals to a higher order of love. He says, now make sure before you make these decisions, you have given thought to how it affects other people and put their needs above your own liberty. Your right to eat the meat is not more important than your need to watch out for your brother. And so here, this is essentially the same kind of ethic, the same kind of priority that's being established here, that there not be any action take place among the Gentiles who enter the church, which would offend their Jewish brethren, even if they are legally, biblically allowed to do these things. It's basically what Romans 14 argues for, which is a willful restriction on our own personal liberty for the benefit of the greater good. The last one, just to cover it, is fornication. That's the fourth one, a fourth or the second group. This doesn't refer so much to immoral sexual activity because that is a sin already. He doesn't, he doesn't need to prohibit that. Gentiles, all Christians would be called to refrain from, that, from illegitimate sexual relationships. What we're looking at here more than likely are the kinds of, of sexual morality licentiousness, lewdness, or other, or prostitution in some cases, which again are all illegitimate sexual relationships, but culturally among Gentiles, it had not come to be seen that way yet. It was going to take decades of Christian living built upon doctrinal teaching out of the apostles' letters before Gentiles come to realize that some of these practices are wrong. Trying to put yourself back in the mindset of the pagan Roman culture There was absolutely nothing wrong with going into a temple and having sexual relations with a woman who was a prostitute for that temple god. That was normal, accepted, and even encouraged behavior. Is God's concern for the Gentiles in this first decade or so of their newfound faith, is his concern the sexual immorality that takes place in the temple? Well, I'm not speaking for God, but it may not always be the first concern for every believer. So what I'm thinking is happening here is James is saying, I'm going to accelerate this process, at least in a few areas where I know that if we don't get these things quickly addressed, the unity of the church is threatened. And things that offended the Jewish believer in that day more than anything else were these eating disorders, as you might think of them, the way they think of it is eating disorders, 
Because I can't spend time with somebody when the primary fellowship event is food. The Lord's Supper, meals in homes. I mean, that's such an integral part of, of fellowshipping in this day that if the food itself or the way you ate became an impediment to fellowship, we're never going to get together. And then secondly, the sexual sin is an issue in and of itself because of how it would drive a wedge in the church and, and then how it would compromise the witness and the lifestyle of these Christian believers in the pagan relationships they had. What I want to make clear and we'll move on is these are not rules that are binding on Gentiles. They're not a law that is, for example, still in effect today. This is not legal binding rules. If there was ever a moment in the history of the entire church when an opportunity existed for the apostles to declare that the law was still required for believers, this was the perfect moment. That was the question. This, they had an audience ready to receive that answer and actually wanting that answer. They had it all set up. If there was ever any instinct or, or desire on the part of the apostles to say, you know what, good Christians ought to keep the law of Moses, this would have been the moment to say it. And clearly James goes out of his way to say we are not going to trouble the Gentiles with that requirement. But it's a small accommodation. We're going to ask for these small things. If he's saying that the law doesn't apply, but I'm asking for these four things, then by definition, these four things are not the law because you either do all of the law or you do none of it. These are not law then. These are requirements for that church in that day from their leader for good purposes in unity within that body. And we have the same thing happen today. We don't have men who say don't eat blood or, you know, I hope maybe we do. But what we typically hear are things that are more common or more appropriate to our day. Yeah, don't don't do certain things that will offend people in our neighborhood. Don't uh, let's let's be good neighbors where we park. Let's do this and that and the other. And, And those things are binding on us. In the spirit of submission to our leaders, we fall under leadership, we fall under someone's authority, we should be obedient to that authority and submit to it, even if you don't agree with their point of view, up to the point in which they depart from Scripture, and that scriptural departure becomes so serious that it impedes our own ability to worship and fellowship in in accordance with the Word. I mean, where we find that not everyone's going to be perfect, even in their discussion or in their following of Scripture, so we have to be careful. It's not about, first time you make a mistake, I'm out of here, but it should be more about the degree of that mistake, and to what effect does it have on my ability to be edified and fellowship in the Word? Does that indict their faith, or does it indict their claims to salvation? Can Christians be wrong about doctrine? Absolutely. And even to today, you have Christians who want people to obey the law, who believe it's a necessity, who believe you have to be Jewish even. There are Messianic Christians pretending to be Jew, romanticizing the concept of being what it meant to be Jew and believing it's a a superior mindset. But it's all coming out of a heart that is misinformed and out of a desire to see the flesh glorified, out of a works-based feeling. I can do something and feel better about who I am before God rather than recognizing I can do nothing. I'm saved by faith alone. I can sin or I can do good works, but that's a whole different line. Christians can do good things. Christians can do bad things. Unbelievers can do good things. Unbelievers can do bad things. They're tangential. They're not in alignment. So when I find someone who is teaching bad doctrine, I don't automatically conclude they don't know the Lord. I just I need to get to know them and understand what they believe about the gospel. And even people who are saved can be wrong about what the gospel teaches. So as James makes his statement and makes his requirements, we in the same way from time to time will get instructions from our eldership about restrictions that are being asked of us, restrictions in our liberty. They're not law. We respect those judgments of our elders and we take those instructions with humility. Sometimes Their instructions may be wrong. Sometimes their instructions may be unhelpful. 
But as long as we congregate with them under their leadership, then we have to respond in obedience. And if their instructions should rise to the point of contradicting Scripture, before we run out the door, the biblical expectation is we reach out to them in the correct manner, correcting them on their teaching. Christ gives us rules on how to do that in, in the Gospel of Matthew. It's tough. It requires someone who's, who's pretty sure about where they sit in Scripture and they have a, a spirit leading to do it. But we should at least give them an opportunity to know what we think. You might be surprised how often the leader will turn and be teachable. And so it's better to give them the opportunity. Finally, in verse 21, James gives his justification for making these requests. He says that in every city from ancient generations, there are people who proclaim and read Moses. That refers, of course, to the first five books of the Bible, the law. And James reminds the crowd that because in every city you're going to find Jews preaching Moses in the sense of being read in the synagogue, Jews who follow it out in the streets, those same cities are where we want to go with this gospel message and preach the gospel. If we're going to coexist with Jews in these cities and perhaps even win a few for Christ, his argument then for these restrictions is we will remain culturally sensitive and do more work because of it and find more success as a result. And... If the Gentiles continue, on the other hand, in the repulsive practices done in the name of Christ, they besmirch his name in front of Jews and perhaps even rile up the Jews for more persecution. I mean, there's just all goodness in these rules. It's just restricting liberty. Following the instructions, the plan is put in action. We'll finish out the chapter with this. Verse 22. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. Remember that this council took place because the first and most prominent Gentile church in Antioch had requested the meeting. So the Gentiles in Antioch, having wanted a final decision from the apostles, they are due that decision. And this is the way it's transferred. James's pronouncement has to be delivered in some official way. And I I want you to note how careful they are to do this in a very official way. It's not haphazard. It's not sort of taken for granted. Oh, yeah, Paul, just go tell them what we decided. They want to settle it. They don't want any further discussion. And travel required time and there was distance and you could not communicate easily back and forth. There stood the chance that if they sent up Paul alone, let's say, with Barnabas, and they were required to relate the issue back. Well, remember, they had a vested interest in the outcome. They were part of the group that argued the issue at first. Maybe they come back and report, yeah, these guys said exactly what we said. And it comes off as, well, how do we know that's true, Paul? You know, they've got to settle the issue in a proper way. So... In this case, they select two men, Judas and Silas, to accompany Paul and Barnabas. And their job here is to testify to the truth of what James and the rest of the council has said. To back up the story, in other words, that's coming in the letter. We don't know much here about Judas and never hear his name again in the book of Acts or anywhere else in Scripture. 
But Silas actually appears frequently in the book of Acts. He will accompany Paul on the second missionary journey that Paul takes. He's said to be a gifted prophet, spiritually gifted prophet, and he is obviously an elder in the church of Jerusalem. That's part of why he was sent up in this particular case. And as a recognized leader from the Jewish church in Jerusalem, they would have been accepted as authorities and their word would have been accepted. It's probably the case that the people of Antioch, the Gentile believers, knew Silas by name. They knew that the church in Jerusalem was James and Peter or James and Silas and some other men. His name would have given him that credibility when he shows up to testify. James not wanting to leave the city, obviously. They also carry this letter, and of course the letter includes the basic decision that we saw James make already. But the first part of it here is interesting. It renounced the actions and the instructions of the men who had gone up there earlier. It repudiates them publicly as not having come with our instruction. And they were the ones who troubled you, and they unsettled your souls, and so on. And what it says more than just the issue, it says they are invalid. Their ministry is invalid. Their credentials as teachers are not valid. Which means if they dispute this argument in your presence, know that they're just talking for themselves. You should not give credence to what they say. And in place of what they said, then instructions from James are now written into the letter. Notice in verse 28, James credits the Holy Spirit with being the one who delivered these instructions to the church leaders. That's in keeping with uh, what Jesus said in John 16:13, when he said that the Holy Spirit would guide the church into all truth. He's showing that proof here. And then notice as he ends the letter, he says you would do well to observe these four restrictions. Notice he does not say that it would result in your righteousness, it will result in holiness, or even that it would avoid sin. He's not implying personal advantage in any of these actions. That's going back to what we've already said. They are going to do well only in the sense that it will make the church prosper. They'll be united. They'll be stronger for having adopted these practices. They were unifying in their purpose. So then it falls to Paul and Barnabas to deliver the message and hand the letter off. And that's what we see now in verse 30. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. And they had spent time there. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of God, or the word of the Lord. So the occasion here for delivering the decision is a large congregational meeting. I love the fact that so much of the early church operates just the way we do things today, and at least in some fashion, right? They, hey, we got a letter. Everybody, let's get together. We have a big congregational meeting. Be here at 7 o'clock, and everybody shows up. Now, I want you to imagine the moment as we finish this up. Imagine the moment before the announcement. You have what I assume would be a fairly tense uh, moment. There's a lot of anticipation in the room. They know why they sent these guys down. It's been a little while since they've been gone. They finally come back. They hear there's a decision. And they're going to get it announced. So they're all coming back to this announcement. And particularly among the men, I think there's a lot of angst over what's the decision going to be. Because remember, what if the decision had gone the other way? What's the next thing that's going to happen probably within the church? Everybody line up. Maybe not in that exact moment, I realize, but that would have been the inevitable conclusion, right? So they're all wondering, is Paul going to announce that circumcision is a requirement for salvation? And then would we be required to follow the law? But here's the more troubling thing. If you think about it more than just a minute, you realize there's a more troubling aspect to the question. Because if the answer comes back, you have to be circumcised first and you have to follow the law. What they're also saying, what they would be saying in effect is, you're not saved. 
You've been sitting there thinking you're saved. You've been sitting there assuming God is now pleased with you, that you now have a future that's different than the one you had. Guess what? You're wrong. What kind of fear comes when that suggestion is put on the table, that perhaps you're not who you think you are in faith? So Paul and Barnabas read the letter, and the crowd rejoices. There was much rejoicing. (laughs) That must be an understatement. This is an edict of freedom, delivered notably from the head of the Jewish center of evangelism, to the newly established head of the Gentile center of evangelism, decreeing from one to the other, you don't have to do what we have had to do in the past. You do not have to be one of us. You are, you are who you are. It's an edict of freedom. The room was encouraged, and then it gives way to the two visitors who've come down all this way to deliver this letter. What else do you have to say for us? This is so common today. Someone who shows up, a visitor of some kind, a notable uh, missionary from out of town, someone like that, we give them the floor quite often. We give them an opportunity to speak. This is very much in, in keeping with that kind of a, of a courtesy. But I find it interesting, personally, as a teacher, that they were very encouraged by a lengthy message. Did you notice that? Encouraged and strengthened with a lengthy message. Remember that the next time your pastor runs long on Sunday. The men speak because they have a gift of prophecy, so their message is probably one of teaching and also reports from the field of, of what goes on in Jerusalem, things like that. After they spoke, they hang around, it says, for a while. That phrase in Greek implies a while, uh, weeks, days, months, something like that. Finally, it's time to go home. They're sent back to Jerusalem. Now, interesting, little side here. In verse 34, you may find a statement declaring that Silas remained. If your Bible's like mine, it has brackets around it. Some of your Bibles may not even have it. Uh, there is very good evidence to suggest this was not written by Luke, this, this one verse. What likely happened, and I find myself agreeing with this personally, uh, some well-meaning scribe, the guys who had the job of copying Bible texts, didn't get the text right, they, meaning they didn't understand it themselves. They read through the end of the story, and they noticed that later in the story, particularly in verse 40, which we are, uh, haven't uh, read yet, Silas is seen leaving Antioch with Paul on the second missionary journey. And so this well-meaning scribe, reading through the text too quickly, says, well, how can it be that Silas and Judas go back to Jerusalem when Silas and Paul leave Antioch to go on a missionary journey? Certainly Luke meant to tell us at about this point that Silas stayed behind. But the scribe here has assumed something without it necessarily being required in order to interpret the text properly. It's reasonable that Silas would have returned to Jerusalem after the trip because he's in in a place now to report back to the elders of Jerusalem about what's just transpired up in Antioch. Plus, it's probable that he has a life there. He has family there. He has some other obligations there. He's not just going to disappear into the world from this moment. More than likely, he'd have to get his affairs in order, even if he was considering a trip with Paul. But then later, he'll leave Jerusalem again, as is obvious, and come back to Antioch and take this trip with Paul. The fact that Luke doesn't cover the ins and outs of the life of Silas in three or four verses between 34 and 40 doesn't mean that you have to assume he just stayed behind. The text itself says they were sent back. There's only two of them. So if one stays, it's not they anymore. So the the scribe here has made an addition that was not correct or necessary. What I like to point out, though, is how many of our Bibles know that. Either you don't have the verse or you have it in brackets. And so to the one who says you can't trust Scripture, even the parts that we have left in but feel are probably not right, we're, the Bible is transparent enough, the translations of the Bible are transparent enough to make that clear. And if you do have 34 without brackets, I'd get a different Bible. 
in all seriousness, because you're, you're looking at a Bible that's not sensitive to some of those differences. This is where the events of Galatians 2 probably took place. We talked about the book of Galatians being the moment when Paul wrote about some of these events. And last time I mentioned when the, the letter was probably written was after he returned from the council. Well, then I think the events of that chapter, chapter 2, also occurred at about this time, after the Council of Galatians. Peter came up to Antioch, we're told, in the book of Galatians. He was there visiting in Antioch. Remember, Peter's not going to stay in Jerusalem after the council. He's going to leave. He's wanted. Elders from Jerusalem, it says, according to Galatians 2, also came up to visit. Those elders may have included Silas. That may have been the moment Silas returned. And at their arrival, Paul says in Galatians 2, that Peter withdraws from eating with the Gentiles. He had you know, beforehand been eating with the Gentiles, no problem. But now Peter sees James and some of the elders come up from the, the church in Jerusalem and he gets all hoity-toity and he decides, I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles anymore. I'm going to show these good Jewish elders from Jerusalem that I respect the Jewish distinctions and I'm not going to eat with my Gentile brothers anymore. And in doing so, he's essentially refusing to accept the council's decree. He's essentially acting against what James himself had declared earlier. You see, Paul saying in Galatians 2, he was willing to confront Peter to his face over this hypocrisy. All of those events, I think, transpired in these months or weeks after the council while Paul is yet to go on his second journey. Speaking of the journey, we'll finish the chapter with that as the next stage of Paul's life. And next week, we'll come back into looking at it. Uh, verse 36 and to the end, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp, sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So Paul gets the bug to move out again and see what's come of all the churches they planted. And he encourages Barnabas to accompany again. Barnabas agrees, but then he makes a suggestion concerning their partner, their, their, their accompaniment. And that upsets Paul because Paul is not going to allow John Mark to abandon them a second time. Before we look at that issue Notice that the need to have a partner is preeminent in the mind of both Paul and Barnabas. This is in the, the traditional biblical view of missionary work in pairs, in partnership, not alone on the field. A practice that I try to follow as much as I can. I think it's important to make, to make clear the Bible does expect that. It does, it does promote that. Barnabas is sticking by his guns here. Barnabas believes that there is a rehabilitation, perhaps, or a second chance uh, available to John Mark in light of his first mistake. And there's a sharp disagreement and a separation. The word for separation there in the Greek has a root from which we get the word schism. It literally means divide. And the divide here was between the two men over this issue. Paul choosing one, a new person, Barnabas staying with John Mark. We never hear about Barnabas and John Mark again in the book of Acts. That doesn't necessarily condemn their actions. It may just be a reflection of the fact that Luke stayed with Paul and his story is about Paul, not about Barnabas. So as that split took place, he just lost contact with them. We know they go to Barnabas's hometown in Cyprus. But Paul later says in 1 Corinthians that they had reconciled at least to a degree. In Colossians 4, he says that Barnabas and Paul maintained some kind of fellowship, but at a distance. He also describes a reconciliation with John Mark 
in uh, his second letter to Timothy and in Philemon. There was not a disagreement here to the extent that fellowship was broken, but there was a disagreement in the conduct of ministry to the extent that they felt it better to separate and conduct ministry separately than to war about it in the moment. You can make several observations and conclusions from this. First, as I said already, on the front lines of ministry, you need partners you can work with and trust you shouldn't work on your own. Secondly, fellowship can be maintained at a distance. Fellowship's important, but I think sometimes we make it a higher goal than we should. It's not necessarily that important that I have cordial, close contact relations with everyone I've ever worked with in ministry. People come and go. God lets that happen. And then finally, the effect of this separation appears to have been similar to the effect of persecution on the early church. It resulted in two missionary teams going out instead of one. So who's to say it wasn't by God's decree that there be this separation? How's, how are we to conclude that it was a bad thing in that light? Especially when we know there was a general reconciliation between the men over the course of their ministry. Here's the conclusion I draw from that. Our ministry goal should not be to grow, but to replicate. And there is a difference. Growth by itself is just weight and baggage and stagnation. Replication produces copycats who want to do the same thing you do. But copycats, in my experience, don't like competition. So they move to new places. All the better. We want copycats. The separation here gives a new opportunity for a new missionary. That's the last observation. Silas, who was previously not engaged at all in this work, now gets the chance to participate because of the split. So it brings someone new into ministry as a result. He's similar to Paul in many ways. He's a leader in the Jerusalem church. He's a prophet like Paul. He's also a Roman citizen like Paul, which helps later when they get into a skirmish. And he is sent out by the church in Antioch with Paul on this mission. So when we come back next week, we will pick up with that second journey. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, that we did uh, get a chance to see so much in Scripture tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to hear from so many voices. Uh, thank you for the patience as we took time tonight to, to understand this, this text properly. And thank you, Lord, for liberty and grace and for a church, Father, that understands those things. And we uh, thank you and praise you and ask that we come back next week. In Jesus' name, amen.